0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode three of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City, and I'm here with my friend David Anthony Smith of Idaho Shakespeare Festival and Great Lakes Theater. David, how are you today?
1: I'm great, Kyle. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. It's great to be here.
0: Of course. It's awesome to be able to catch up with you. It's been a good four years since we talked last, and it's about time we made that happen. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Dude. I guess, uh, first of all, why don't you just tell uh, myself and the listeners a little bit more about you and your background and your history?
1: Uh, yeah, I grew up in L.A. I went to Taft High School Woodland Hills. Uh, I attended the University of California, Santa Barbara, where I got involved in acting. I originally went up there as a psych major, tried out for a one-act play and said, I really want to do this, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> was able to go to a fantastic graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, which is now located at the University of Delaware, the professional theater training program there. Kind of a really avant-garde program where we studied uh, Japanese theater, uh, Tadashi Suzuki training, and we did Est, and we were Rolfed, and we did Nautilus. And uh, I graduated from there in 1984, uh, moved back to L.A., where I, I dabbled in film and TV and, and some theater for 20 years. And then in 2001, I auditioned for Charlie Fee, with the Idaho Shakespeare Festival, and I've been a uh, leading actor there for the last. Uh, this is my fifteenth season. I've played a number of different roles, including Iago, where Kyle and I worked together on Othello, and uh, Benedict, Barun, Petruchio, uh, Prospero in The Tempest, Bottom, Lord Goring, and Ideal Husband. Lots of different roles over the last fifteen years, and as well as acting at Great Lakes Theater uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, Lake Tahoe Shakespeare Festival. So. It's been a great run, and I'm still learning, I'm still always learning about uh, language and uh, persuasive speaking, which is what we're really going to be talking about today. For all of you listeners, we're going to be delving a little bit into rhetoric, which most people, Kyle, don't know the correct definition of. You ask 99% of the people, they, they cannot give you a good definition of the word rhetoric. Well, why don't we start with that? The art of persuasion the through art language either written or spoken, the art of persuasion. So we should always be thinking about speaking persuasively on stage as as Shakespearean actors or as classical actors. If we think about speaking persuasively, man, that's such we're so ahead of the game. Well, you know what?
0: Why don't we talk a bit about speaking persuasively then in a, in a very unique play that you did recently uh, at Idaho Shakespeare Festival. Um, you just played Prospero in The
1: Tempest, was was your most recent Shakespearean conquest, am I correct? That's right, as well as playing the Earl of Gloucester right now. But we closed that production about a month ago. It originated in Cleveland. We played at the Hannah Theater for two weeks, and then we opened it in Boise, Idaho in early June. Uh, I got to work with uh, Drew Barr, a fantastic director. He's uh, directed uh, premieres of War Horse in the Netherlands and in Australia. Uh, He's worked with Nicholas Heitner. This is our eighth show together. I first worked with Drew in 2001 playing Benedict for him. And uh, it's so fantastic to work with the director that many times. We're really on the same page. We did so many edits of the text together. uh, And and he just had a great vision for this production of The Tempest. We had watched some of the trailer together. But we were both on the same page as far as Prospero uh, having a tougher journey then most Tempests make it for him. Hmm. Usually he's kind of the omnipotent director of everything. Everything's pretty easy because he's a a, a superior magician and he has this uh, servant Ariel at his beck and call and that it's all a matter of just having Ariel uh, shipwreck everybody and then he he kind of is the fantastic director of, of all about him and he brings his enemies into his power and then and then decides at the, at the last minute to forgive them. Well, Drew and I decided that that would be a, a much tougher journey. Right. Uh, but, but Prospero is a fantastic role. Uh, he has a very, very tough start with uh, uh, seven or eight pages, uh, maybe some 250 lines of exposition. But once he's through that, the play starts to get interesting for him. Well, why don't you let us know how it is to, to tackle
0: that exposition as an actor? Like, how how do you work your action objective through
1: something that just is so much exposition? Well, we had to make the stakes higher. Mm. So he's not just simply recounting a story. You have to remember who he's talking to. He's talking to his daughter, Miranda. She's, uh, she's now... St- Fifteen, sixteen years old. She's been shipwrecked on the island with him since she was three. She is his life. Hmm. She is everything for him. He still studies magic. He still has his books. But his whole life on this island has been devoted to making her the princess that she's capable of becoming. And marrying, as she does, uh, the prince of Naples, the king's son. So he has been her schoolmaster, her tutor on this island for the last 12 years so he's recounting this story to her that he's never told her so everything is a revelation for her and he's actually reliving some of the the pain that's associated with being woken up in the middle of the night by your by your evil brother with an army scuttled off to a boat Uh, And then sailed off into the ocean to the middle of nowhere and then put on a smaller boat with no mast, no sail, no oars, no nothing and left there adrift to die. So it's not just simply exposition. It's him reliving the nightmare uh, of 12 years ago and what Alonzo and Antonio did to him and his three year old daughter. And there's some great stuff in there where she says, oh, what a burden I must have been to you. And he says, oh, a cherubim thou wast that did preserve me. Thou didst smile, infused with a fortitude from heaven, which raised in me an undergoing stomach to bear up against what should ensue. So it's more than exposition. As it always is in Shakespeare.
0: <laughs> right, it's about why you're telling the information and who you're telling it to and, and bringing up all those those terrible memories and maybe working through them or fighting to keep yourself under control or less emotional while you're telling this story. And I, I guess uh, the, the the moral we've learned here, actors who are listening, is when you have exposition, just make sure you're finding some really important reason to tell that information and that you're, you're fighting an obstacle throughout the
1: speech. Exactly. And that's great, Colin. And then we come to that word again, persuasion. See, you have to be persuading Miranda that, that this that everything is going to be okay. And that the story is telling you that you are a princess. And then, of course, finally telling her the reason for this storm. That's what the exposition's really about because she says, "Why have you allayed these waters I mean allay these waters why have you raised this storm my father and he's not only telling her that everyone's okay that everyone's alive but that who they are who these enemies are so he's persuading her that he uh, that he is he's done this storm for a very specific reason and that actually she is a, 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 she finds out for the first time that she's a princess he tells her he He used to be the Duke of Milan, by the way, my dear dear daughter. I used to be a man of incredible power. Uh, So it's always, always persuading somebody. Otherwise, it does just become a story that's by rote, and you'll put the audience to sleep. And it's funny, Shakespeare has there several times, wake up, Miranda, don't don't fall asleep, pay pay close attention to this story. Do you attend me? So he also wants the audience to, to pay close attention to this exposition. Right, as
0: well. it's kind of an interesting double thing. He's telling Miranda to to pay attention so that it wakes the audience up from a long bout of exposition. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we have a little bit of an idea of, you know, his his objective in the beginning of the play with the exposition, but Prospero also has seems to have a unique set of objectives throughout the rest of the play as well. I mean, the way he goes about things with... Um, you know Ferdinand and making sure that that Ferdinand's working harder for Miranda than he perhaps is at the moment, um, and just the, the way he goes about things indirectly with Ariel and with Caliban and with Alonso and Antonio and everybody. What 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 is I guess Prospero's overarching set of objectives in the play? Like what does he want? What is he working towards on this island?
1: Well, I, I see it as two major objectives. One, the first is revenge. He wants to see his enemies suffer as he has suffered. I mean, they very well could have died. Uh, Gonzalo, his friend, did give them some food and some fresh water and some garments and and his books. But they were very, very lucky to to land on that island. And the second objective, which I think is almost as important as the first, is is to make sure that his daughter is going to have a great life after after they get off the island and in in that sense that's bringing her together with Ferdinand uh, the, the king of Naples son so really he's doing everything for his daughter in a way even revenging his enemies is for his daughter everything Prospero does is is for the betterment of Miranda his offspring.
0: Okay, so I mean, I guess then that sort of shapes all of his objectives around about around the well being of Miranda, which is
1: interesting. Uh-huh. And he uses uh, you know people in, in his in his path to to achieve that objective. He uses Ariel, of course, sure, his servant. Uh, it's interesting in the production that we did. Ariel was was kind of in Prospero's mind to some degree. We had this wonderful uh, obsidian sphere on the end of the staff and. Uh, the director and I studied uh, scrying, which is uh, something that John Dee did, who was a contemporary of Shakespeare's, and actually they would look into uh, dark obsidian, sometimes mirrors of obsidian in a dark room with candles, and stare into the abyss until the abyss stared back into them. Uh, but he, he would use magic. He uses magic in, in a way that the, the sphere became aerial, and at the very end i take the sphere off the staff, and release Ariel into the void. It would drop into this magic uh, kind of pit. And so I'm releasing wow. Ariel from this. So the Ariel was kind of in, in my mind, and the island was actually a sort of in Prospero's mind. We have these wonderful uh, mirrored breath boxes part of the show. It's a very interesting production. Uh, uh, but he, of course, he he uses Caliban too. Caliban is is the servant. It's a great relationship. Because 12 years ago, when they arrived on the island, uh, you know, the director and I talked about the Prosper really uh, Caliban being the son that he never had, and although he is ill-shaped, uh, he's still very much human. And I think to make Caliban inhuman is a great disservice to the play. Sure. Because otherwise, how would he possibly mate with Miranda? And I think that needs to be a very real threat. Is that Caliban? Uh, has somehow tried to violate the honor of Prospero 's child, and this has created a great rift between them and uh, we as uh, the company came up with the idea that this has happened very recently, so it 's a very very kind Fresh. of open wound open wound between Prospero and Caliban and in this production, Kyle is, is I think you, I wish you had seen it. Uh, at the very end the epilogue is not given to the audience but to Caliban mm. to his forgiveness release me from my bands with the help of your good hands and we just did this wonderful kind of you know almost a sistine chapel sure. uh, god to, to adam uh, hand touch at the end so uh, he's got he's, he's very very distrustful and hateful of caliban for for trying to uh uh, molest or rape or whatever the incident was with Miranda, and again we we talked about this earlier about the possibility of, of Prospero fighting thoughts of incest, not that he would ever act on them, but that you know I, I, I'm not a father so I don't know this, but I've I've talked to a lot of of people that have that have daughters and that our fathers uh, before I embarked on this production and they said sure they have thoughts that my daughter is never good enough for any man and that wow my daughter is all of a sudden turned into a beautiful woman but because of you know the uh, absolute taboo of incest we we all fight those you know fathers fight those feelings and one of the way that you get rid of the feelings is you marry your daughter off so some you know that, that's that's <laughs> well, how you and we you know, we did talk about how
0: earlier how it's it's something that you can't make glaringly obvious to the audience in a production is because such a thing might make people uncomfortable. But as an actor, it is something that you have to incorporate into how you build the character because it's something that may be there that you can't ignore and, and makes things more real and more complex and more interesting in the relationship. Yes.
1: More, uh, the, the stakes were much higher for Prospero getting her together with Miranda and, and the, the jealousy that he has of, of, uh, of Ferdinand. That that his daughter is not going to be good enough, and he's not going to be good enough for his daughter, and that, that it's very, very hard to let go of her, very, very hard to give her up. She's been such an important part of his life, and she's the last thing that he's really holding on to that's part of the past, and that once he lets her go, he really does say, every third thought shall be my grave, whether that's real or not, but it is it is what he says, he says where i shall retire in me to my millen where every third thought shall be my grave he's let go of he's let go of her he's had to let go of his daughter
0: it's an interesting journey that, that prospero has throughout the play from i mean from beginning to end and he he goes about things we talked earlier he goes about things so indirectly and he has so many there's so many things at play um, one of the things that's more complicated about prospero i think uh, is is the element of magic which we talked about also shakespeare doesn't introduce magic into too many plays, but in in like for example, in Midsummer there's there's some magic, um, and in the Tempest, that his his final play, he he has this element of magic that he just asks the audience to accept. Um, and, and what what is it like having that come into play?
1: Yeah, well, I think it would have been a lot easier for the Elizabethan audience, but uh, you know, he's actually like a real magician, and he's using the the four things that define any kind of situation uh, time location duration and place uh, so he, he's uh, he 's obviously somehow been able to tap into the spirit world, which is you know very hard for a modern audience to kind of to to take in is that all of a sudden he 's got this servant of the air that is able to create a storm create winds uh, he says he's been able to uh, to open graves and uh, have the sleepers wake up. I mean, this is an incredibly powerful magician. And it's interesting it's the- how
0: we talk. Uh, we we sometimes see Shakespeare to ask the audience to please accept these things, like in uh, the chorus monologue at the, the beginning of Henry V, where Shakespeare literally has a chorus come out and say, listen, we know that all this doesn't look realistic, but w- will you please just like pardon us and, and give us a break, because we can't put an army on stage. In this, uh-huh. he just sort of throws the audience into the action of the play and and just, without asking, says, please just accept this world for for the magic that is within it. So I, mean, I found that to be a really interesting element in The Tempest. Uh, one other important thing about The Tempest, I wrote, uh, The Tempest, where meter is barely a suggestion. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to get your opinion on on the meter in The Tempest because Shakespeare as we know, breaks the meter for certain reasons, for various reasons in, you know, all of his other plays. You know, you'll find trochees here and there, feminine endings, pyrrhics and spondies, a rhyming couplet here and there. But in in The Tempest, it seems like every line has one or two irregularities to the meter at least. And I guess my question is, when when nothing is special, I mean, all of the meter changes are special and all the irregularities are special. But when there are so many of them, how do you pay attention to each one and make each one special?
1: Oh, you just got to deal with each line as it comes to you, and first of all, see whether see whether you can make it regular by uh, either elision or contraction, and then, you know, and, and you pay attention to to whatever kind of rhetorical device is going on, and and each take each line as it comes to you. But I mean, I think Shakespeare is really like like a excellent jazz musician. I mean, this is this is him. Uh, you know Coltrane. This, this is his incredible, you know, later, you know, rift. This he's writing this play right around 1609, 1610, and he's such a master of everything. There, I don't think he wanted to keep anything kind of regular, and he he knew that he could he could play around with different line endings. I mean, I had I have three lines as Prospero that end with the word and, which never occur anywhere in the canon. But Shakespeare just knew that he could get away with it at that point because he was so deft with it by that
0: point it's interesting you bring up the concept of a jazz musician because i mean in jazz there are a certain there is a certain structure but it's also you know it's interesting when it's broken and when like a really talented seasoned jazz musician takes those liberties frequently and in a series it it just it either comes off as as sheer brilliance or Mm -hmm. it, it can come off as Alarming and, and and catch somebody's attention, and I think those those are two things that Shakespeare is is definitely definitely doing in in the Tempest as opposed to his other plays. Um, mm-hmm. The other play that you are working on right now is uh, is the tragedy of King Lear, uh, which I, I just was hoping you could tell us a little bit about playing the Earl of Gloucester.
1: Well, it's uh. One of the out of the four major tragedies, Hamlet, Lear, Othello uh, and Macbeth it 's the only major tragedy that has a uh, a real uh, tang- tangential subplot with it. So Lear has three daughters, uh, Cordelia Regan, and Goneril, and two of them are kind of perfidious, and, and one is just unable to heave her heart into her mouth. And uh, the Earl of Gloucester, who is uh, Lear's good friend and kind of his secretary of state, so to speak, has two sons. And so they both run this kind of tangential course uh, where where there is, you know, filial ingratitude. So that's what we're seeing in the play, how children can kind of rise up against the old and try to take them down. Uh, It's a great role. Uh, one of the great things about the role is his, his, uh, he is blinded, blinded on stage. Sure. Sure. And through b- being blinded is when he truly sees. So it becomes a <laughs> whole metaphor for sight. And as we were talking about earlier, sight is so important in this play. Um, yeah, just to give everybody a quick idea, the
0: uh, word eye appears 55 times in this play, whether as eye or eyes. The word sight appears 13 times. And the word "scene" appears thirteen times as well, um, and "see" is, appears one hundred and sixteen times.
1: Um, yes, that may better be part here, of other words, but here. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, so how does a, how does his his journey of being blinded like affect him from one act to the to the next?
1: Well, I mean, he's so duped by his son Edmund. That uh, the you know the first three acts he's basically intent on on finding Edgar and and kind of getting revenge on him, and then you know when the tables are turned on him and his eyes are taken out, that's when he really has a journey. Well, he wants to kill himself. He's obviously intent on getting to the cliff in Dover, and then it's so wonderful because his son Edgar, who is uh, had to disguise himself. As a bedlam beggar, poor Tom, is the one that Gloucester chooses to lead him to the, the cliff or the, you know, the end of your life, the precipice. And then ends up, of course, duping him to thinking that he's at the edge of the cliff. And then the fall is just really simply onto even ground. There's a wonderful uh, shot in uh, Peter Brook's Lear where the camera just pulls back and he's in the middle of a desert. So Edgar is uh, unable to let his father kill himself. Uh, but he kind of gets to spend the last days with him. So it's really a wonderful journey to, to be blinded and then have your son there who you kind of sort of feel like is familiar to you. And then of course the great scene on the beach with Lear, uh, where there, uh, where Lear is mad and Gloucester is blinded and they kind of reconnect with each other. So it's a fantastic journey. The uh, the role of Gloucester is just marvelous. Someone that uh, actually can finally see through being blinded. And, uh, you know, it, it realizes that, uh, that through his son that life is still worth worth living, even though he continues to want to kill himself. It's like, why do we hang on? Again, I guess this is Hamlet's question, right? You know, why do we continue to, to go on when things seem bleak and hopeless? Because we're afraid, aren't we, of, of the undiscovered country. We don't know what else. Might be out there.
0: One thing you mentioned, his like his finally being able to see uh, only after he becomes blind is interesting because in Act One, Scene Two, of the play, he's he's so easily duped by by his his son Edmund. Um, so w- can you talk to us a little bit about that scene and and what what that scene's like really early in the play?
1: Yeah, well, um, obviously Gloucester's just come away from the kingdom being kind of hastily divided, and there's kind of unrest now the potential for civil war so he's got that coming into the scene but he's been given a piece of hard evidence which is a letter that edmund has forged mm. and gloucester asks edmund is it is it edgar's hand is it his handwriting and and edmund's really good at this he's a he's a un, an unnatural guy he's an evil force and he says, yes, my lord, it is his. In respect of what it is written, I would fain it were not, but it is his handwriting. So he's so good at tricking his father. And uh, it's a, just a great turnaround how um, uh, Gloucester, uh, who thought that the son that, of course, was his natural son, uh, Edmund being the bastard son or called kind of unnatural. It's funny, in the beginning, the first scene, he, we have the word horson, which is usually pronounced horson. But in our production, we decided to say the whore's son must be acknowledged. So out of Gloucester, that's probably Gloucester's hubris right there is not fully acknowledging his bastard son, Edmund, who was uh, begotten from a prostitute, a whore. And, uh, and, and the Edmund is, is slated to not inherit. And, the, and so he feels jilted. And and, you know, so he feels like he's got every right now to dupe his father. And uh, through this letter, Gloucester is kind of led down um, a—it's all downhill from here. But he's led down a path where he actually talks about the uh, the astronomical events of the eclipses. He says these late eclipses in the sun and moon portend no good to us. And how great is the metaphor for the eclipse? Right. The sun eclipsing the moon. So you have the sun, S-U-N, and then, the, of course, the sun, Edmund, eclipsing the other, the good son Edgar. Uh, but he says, we have seen the best of our times. I keep coming back to that line because Lear, I mean, as Harold Bloom says, I mean, it's just so bleak. Harold Bloom actually said he didn't even want to go see a production. Did you know that, Kyle? He said, <laughs> no, I didn't. I could never see a production of King Lear because anything that they do would ruin it for me. <laughs> but really, we've seen the best of our times. It's so uh, it has such a great echo in, in today with global warming and uh, you know whatever's going on in the world. There's always some kind of war, people killing each other. But he says, hollowness, machinations, and all and treachery follow us disquietly to our graves. So uh, Edmund has set his father on this path, where ob- obviously he's eventually going to lose his sight and uh, lose his life. But uh, it, it, so it's a it's a it's a great turning point in the play. Uh, the perfidy of, of one son can can turn the father.
0: Well, to, and again. a turning point in the second scene of the play. Yeah, uh, I mean Lear is such an unusual play in, in that aspect, in that. There's so, so much happening. I mean, we have this this line you said about um, we have seen the best of our times already planted into Act 1, Scene 2. I mean, in almost... I, I can't think of no other Shakespeare play in which there's such a climax in Act 1, Scene 1. Like you talked about earlier how basically... Gloucester comes back in, all, in the middle of act one, scene one, and already Candace banished, Cordelia is disowned, Lear's throwing a fit in the middle of this, this formal event, and uh-huh. it's it's just so fascinating how Shakespeare puts such an intense amount of conflict into the first scene of the play, and then the second scene of the play, it doesn't necessarily expand upon the hysteria of that, but goes its own different direction in another heightened kind of way.
1: Um, and then and he, more filial ingratitude. In the, the, how you know a thankless to have a thankless child sharper than a serpent's tooth is to have a thankless child. Uh, uh, and great uh, echo of uh, of the word nothing, in Act Act One Scene One, which is a form of uh, a rhetorical device called epimene, which Martin Luther King used so well in his I Have a Dream speech. But uh, Lear asks. The, his three daughters, which of you can say we love us most? So he's actually asking his daughters for heightened speech. He's asking his daughters to describe in flowery terms how much they love him. He's, he wants large speeches. He's actually eliciting from them the need for bomphologia, yeah. or incredibly flowery speech, which Kent talks about Kyle he says your large speeches may your deeds approve and spring from words of love so he knows that the two daughters that are able to provide Lear with the with the anargia with the bonphologia with with the Asianism with the flowery words are actually the ones that are the most perfidious how great is that <laughs> it's amazing and it's it's also interesting to think about because shakespeare
0: when he uses bomphologia is usually with like the clowns or or, or falstaff or characters that bomphologia is used as a rhetoric device to to discredit a character it's like you know to hear an audience hear this character excessively excessively bragging or describing the greatness of something it's, uh-huh. it's a device to to let the audience know oh you should you should kind of discredit some of the things this character says. He's a little off his hinges. Um, but to, to to have Lear asking for this bombastologia from his his daughters directly is something that I can't think of any other instances where Shakespeare uses it like this.
1: Can you? And then he asks Cordelia, "What can you say to win a to win a, a large tract more you know equal to that of your sisters?" And she says nothing. Then the Lear echoes it. Nothing. Nothing, my Lord. Nothing can come of nothing. So there you have the word nothing five times in three lines. And she is unable to heave her heart into her mouth. And, and, you know, it echoes that, you know, say what we, you know, say what we feel, not what we ought to say. You know, think what we feel, not what we ought to say. Is that she's really, really unable to provide him with what he wants. And and that's her flaw, but then it's ultimately Lear's huge hubris to not see that the daughter that he's prized the most, that his youngest daughter, who, who he's really, really loved the most, he's unable to see that she's simply being honest with him. And that you she's know, it's sim- interesting you <laughs> use the word nothing. But other daughters do. I can't give you false words. I can't give you flowery speech. The word nothing in this play is used
0: 34 times, right? Okay. And it, it's interesting to to look at other plays and see that it's used only 13 times in Midsummer Night's Dream and 14 times in Romeo and Juliet. And in Hamlet, which is actually five or 600 lines longer than Lear, it's still used fewer times. It's used, uh, what, 31? In Hamlet, you would think, would be a play where nothing is used a lot. So it's interesting how Shakespeare, almost in a, a subconscious way, makes us think about certain words more often than others. By repeating these words, by repeating nothing five times in that little short span at the beginning of the play, it gets the word nothing into the audience's mindset. And how does that affect the way they think about the play moving forward? You know, right. and and is Shakespeare doing this on purpose or is it? I mean, I, I can't imagine he's not,
1: you know. No, and 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 that word is so great. Nothing. I remember when I was playing Hamlet. I would say the king is a thing, and the king would say what? And the word, the line is of nothing. And I would say the king is a thing of no thing, because that's what nothing is. Right, right, no thing.
0: (laughs) Um. You know, you, you also uh, had mentioned earlier uh, something about Enargia and how that um, is a useful device in Lear. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Enargia is, is a device, uh, a rhetorical device, in which a character vividly describes um, an event or a picture with uh, flowery speech and, and with, with many, many words.
1: Uh, and would, would you like to talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I have a little bit of an argue. I think that uh, when Gloucester is describing the uh, the cliff in Dover, he says there's a cliff whose high and bending head looks fearfully on the confined deep. <laughs> That's a bit of an right. It's descriptive language. And uh, it, it can lead to how, I mean, how a character is feeling. But at that point, you know, Gloucester is persuading his son, to take him to a place where he can jump off a cliff and, and commit suicide. So at that point, he needs to persuade Edgar to take him there, and he just feels like he needs to to paint the picture of the cliff into into poor Tom's mind to get him to Dover. So it's usually always for a reason. Uh, the most famous in RG I think, is uh, is Ina Barba's speech uh, in Antony and Cleopatra. Uh, the barge she sat on, like a burnished throne in a purple, you know, purple sails. But there's usually a reason for why there's incredibly descriptive speech. You always have to find out what is the purpose or what why what is the character achieving through using highfalutin words.
0: (laughs) You know it's it's interesting to think about like an instance of Energia and and notice it and realize that sometimes characters do just describe things fleetingly, you know, I mean, I'm, an example is not coming to me in my mind, but you know, when a character will just mention something and then pass on, it, it mm. reminds you to think about how important something is when a character has to describe it in this flowery, exaggerated, wordy way, and what makes it important enough to describe in that kind of detail. Um, and so I guess, actors, whenever you see something described in detail, just make sure you know why it's important for it to be described to the T to that extent. Mm-hmm. Um, now doing both Prospero and Gloucester within a summer I'm sure has its its myriad challenges and, and takes its own tolls. But what what is it like working um in repertory or in two uh productions so closely uh with such large characters
1: well, it's 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 challenging, but I mean, there's you know you have such different concepts for each production. And when people say, "Hey, do you ever get your roles confused?" I say, "Hey, are you ever mowing your lawn and all of a sudden think you're vacuuming your house?" I mean, <laughs> it, it just it just doesn't happen. You, know, you have such different. Uh, the, these are two completely polar opposite uh, productions, and the characters are so different. But it's it's great to have. So storms in both plays um, and, and you know sure. and they're both and both both of the characters are, are parents to some degree uh, you know uh, Prospero is all about Miranda and I think Gloucester's very much about his sons sure. and uh, one is completely uh, you know fooled him but you know there's such di- such different language and 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 they're di- completely different journeys and I have just enjoyed both of them. Um, we were going to talk a little bit about how, weren't we?
0: Yeah, you know what so for for those of you who are in the Idaho or the Cleveland area you can uh you can see the idaho the rest of the Idaho Shakespeare uh festival production of King Lear runs through august twenty seventh so if you're in the Boise area, go see that as soon as possible uh and then the show comes to Cleveland. Um, performing from October 2nd through November 1st. That's at the Hannah Theater in downtown Cleveland. Um, We have a couple of listener questions that I I wanted to get to. And as long as we brought up the howl, why don't we we talk about that? Uh, The Nerd Pirates on Twitter, at the Nerd Pirates, or at Nerd Pirates, excuse me, asks, um, Lear's howl is a particularly tricky moment for actors. How should or can they tackle dialogue which crosses
1: the boundary between word and sound in this way? Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic question. So what you have to ask yourself as the actor is, are you going to make that an onomatopoeia? Kyle, do you want to describe onomatopoeia for, for the rhetorical newbies? Sure. An onomatopoeia is an
0: instance where a word is basically made up in order to sound like something that it sounds like like a telephone making a ring or a bee buzzing it's just words right, of sure. sound specifically chosen to sound like
1: what they are based on so again you have the the line is howl 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 oh you are men of stones so as the actor playing lear you could say well i'm not going to say that howl 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 that i am just going to ah! Ah! So uh, as you are actually going to do the howl. But I see, I think that that's a mistake. And here's why. I think that Lear is asking the people on stage or persuading the people on stage to be feeling with him and how could he is exhorting them to howl like him. So he says, howl, 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 oh, you are men of stones. You should be howling too. You should be grieving as well. So, but I mean, it's entirely up to the actor, how he chooses to do that.
0: You know, this makes Would me think, think mean, of a device uh, Shakespeare uses pretty often called um, which uh, for those of you who are listening in and are not familiar, it's when Shakespeare sticks that big giant O in the middle of a block of text um, and it doesn't necessarily, some actors believe that it doesn't necessarily m- mean you have to use the vowel sound O, it's just uh, an a open space he leaves for a release of emotion. And mm-hmm. the fact that a howl is quite onomatopoetic sort of fits into that a little bit, but does it necessarily have to be the word howl? Can it not just be a, vo- a giant set of vowels and consonants for a release of emotion?
1: Um, yep, exactly. And that's what there makes get me think of... It's uh, something I've been working on, which you might want to steal from me, Kyle, is what I call <laughs> onomatopoetic speaking, a word mm. I've created. That's where you imbue words that are not necessarily onomatopoeias with some kind of sound quality that heightens the word, like a word like fire. Mm. Fire! Or a word like hot, that this is hot. So another or c- cold... That I'm feeling cold. So it's something I'm working on always with my students, so that we just don't have the words hot, cold, fire. You know, so one of
0: one of my favorite a- instances of that that kind of thing is there's um, Viola in her her ring speech has a line um, oh disguise I see thou disguise I see thou art a wickedness, wherein the pregnant enemy does much and and just. It's one yes. of the most powerful instances I've noticed of onomatopoeia poetry um relating to language because he Shakespeare could use any number of words in that situation right but he picks the word wickedness oh. with that hard k and that s at the end uh in in the the short i sound in the beginning it just really really fits with what you know might be going through Viola's mind at the moment um
1: and the last thing I wanted to point out to you, Kyle, in terms of poetic speaking, do you know Henry V at all? Yes, yes, very familiar. Remember the gift that's given to Henry V at the beginning of the of the play, the gift from the Dauphin, what he's Tennis sent? balls. Tennis balls. Do you remember what he says to this? I'm going to just read this to you. Tell the pleasant prince this mock of his hath turned his balls to gunstones, and his soul shall stand sore-charged for the wasteful vengeance that shall fly with him. From many a thousand widows shall this his mock, mock out of their dear husbands, mock mothers from their sons, mock castles, castles down. down. So what is he doing with mock?
0: <laughs> oh, I mean that, that that sharp K at the end of that word. I've thought about it because to Aled, actually our friend Aled Davies, uh, who's actually playing King Lear at uh, in, at Idaho right now, is uh, taught a class at uh, Baldwin Wallace for my undergrad. And he gave me that speech to work on in class to to try to help me uh, grow as an artist. And I just remember the the that CK and that repeated use of the word muck and muck and how it just sounds like something so forceful.
1: Um, but what? I don't think he told you exactly what it is. It's the tennis match. Muck, 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 muck. muck. So he's created, a, he's created an onomatopoeia out of a non-onomatopoeic word. Mock is not an onomatopoeia. But mm-hmm. now it is. Mock. 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 Okay, that's the genius of Shakespeare for everyone listening. Absolute freaking genius. Shakespeare's a lot of fun.
0: We have another question from Anna Henley on Twitter, at Anna in the Manor. Uh, and she says, Hi, Kyle. I have a question for David. What's it like playing a blind character? How does your experience of the latter act differ from the earlier ones, or does it at all? And I guess we touched on this a little bit, but why why don't you you give us your opinion about that?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, I did a little bit of research on it, but obviously, you know, when you first have your eyes taken out, the other senses aren't immediately going to jump to the forefront. Mm. But there is a little bit of gap in time from when he meets poor Tom to when they arrive in Dover, because it's actually some uh, 120 nautical miles or something that they have to walk. So obviously they have not gotten there overnight. And what I just felt was is that you know obviously your sense of of smell and hearing and, and uh, of 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 touch and of taste are obviously heightened even in two weeks. And I and I did, it was an interesting journey to to try not to look at people. Uh, when you hear them, because you mm. obviously, and when I relate to the gods, I don't like look up because I thought, like, well, why is he looking up? He's he can't see anything anymore. So it's definitely is something that you have to consider uh, as an actor. And it was interesting to to uh, you know, I think it in, increases your degree of listening, which is always something that we need to work on as actors when sure. we rehearse or rehear something. Um, Julie Blakeman.
0: Uh, On Twitter, at JulieBlakeman1 asks, how would the story play out if it had a happy Disney-like ending and King Lear and Cordelia had lived on? Uh, And we know that that there are people who did the production like this in the early 1800s when, you know, everybody was in their phase of, oh, we don't like the bad endings of Shakespeare. Um, So what do you think, David? What would this have been like?
1: (laughs) Well, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really want to touch that question. I mean, I <laughs> just don't think we should mess around with with Shakespeare. I mean, I know they did that in the in the 18th century for a while. They just they couldn't. It, Lear was just too bleak. And if you see Nicholas Nickleby, I guess there's a happy ver- ending to Romeo and Juliet where everybody pops up. But I mean, I think we need to embrace embrace the bleakness of Lear and embrace that Shakespeare is always dealing with death and in the sonnets he's dealing with, you know, uh, the time as being this huge scythe that mows things down. And I think to, uh, to diminish that, it, it diminishes Shakespeare. So I, I don't really, if you want happy endings, go to uh, Midsummer Night's Dream or any of the comedies, the comedies Every yeah. com- except, except Love's Labor's Lost, where Markety or Death comes in at the end and says, hey, your father's died and and everyone has to go their separate way. It's a very very dark ending for a comedy. Um
0: yeah, it's and it's hard to think about too. Like it, the, with the relationship being so damaged as it was at that point and you know, obviously like Cordelia did was the good daughter after all and and sends her husband France to like try to help Lear with her army or with her husband's army and everything, but I mean, at the end Lear's basically mad, or we describe him as mad because we don't understand his behavior at this point anymore. And uh, Cordelia is, I mean, basically uh, like imprisoned by Edmund, right? And so Edmund, I mean, Edmund dies in the end of the play as well. So is she released? And the only happy, the happiest ending I could foresee is Cordelia (laughs) nursing Lear in a in a chair for the rest of his life is in, in senility. So, uh, it, the damage has already been done, so to speak. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> d- happy at this point, isn't necessarily them living, you know, happiness right. is, is Lear getting to rest in peace. Almost, you know, have, have mercy on the guy, you know, what he's just been through for the last five acts. Um, Sharna Blasket, uh, Please forgive me if I mispronounced your name, Sharna. Uh, At Sharna Blask on Twitter asks, what does the storm in Act 3 of King Lear
1: symbolize? Uh, Well, of course it's a metaphor for the storm in Lear's mind. He says, oh, let me not be mad. It's funny, in our production we have several, uh, in Act 2, Scene 4, we have several uh, lightning strikes that start to happen for the whole company that's on stage, and then it leads to, you know, give me that patience. Let me not be mad. And so the, the storm, of course, is, is a metaphor for Lear beginning to lose his mind. But it's also a metaphor for the storm that the daughters have created by being uh, ungrateful to him. And it's a, a metaphor for being um, out in the open air. And, and uh, uh, there's a lot about homelessness in Lear and and, and and that he's neglected the kingdom so that he gets to experience what it's like when he, that's why when he meets poor tom there is a shift from lear being with the fool to lear liking the, the naked wretch poor tom and that that's how he feels is that everything he's been disowned by his daughters and that he he says that he, he actually says off off you lendings he tries to take off his clothes to become naked to the storm as well to, to become naked to the elements, so you know, to speak, it's a great question.
0: And taking taking off his clothes and, and being open to the storm is a great statement on vulnerability too. Which I mean, it doesn't seem it seems like it's one of the more vulnerable points in his long, long life. Um, the last question we have today is from Brent Wilson at Fortunate Dad on Twitter, uh, who asks, "Any chance of you two writing a crossover?" King Lear and Prospero team up to fight crime. Hashtag West Wing. Uh, um, <laughs> so I, got the I magic. Think it's fun. What What do you think? If, if King Lear and Prospero teamed up, let's say, as a detective duo uh, to to try to fight crime, what, what would their relationship be?
1: <laughs> well, I think that uh, Lear would ask uh, Prospero to send down some kind of magical thunderbolt to kill... Uh, Donald Regan <laughs> Just fry, fry them right there you know, you know it's interesting to think about how personally
0: King Lear might take every single crime I mean it, it in, in act one scene one of the play you know we talk about how something so little like causes him to completely disown Cordelia in the matter of in a matter of minutes who was already um, described to be like his his most special um daughter and his his the one that's most dear to him uh so mm, Prospero obviously has all these magic powers so why why don't we elevate this a little bit let's say they're a superhero team um yeah. and you know King Lear has this this bold blazing passion about everything he does, and he's intimidating and, and Prospero is here helping him by. By capturing spirits all the time, like Ariel and Caliban, and any number of other spirits he might capture, in a very Ash Ketchum of Pokemon type way, just being able to capture these spirits and and send them out against whatever else is, uh, is the danger. Who who would their super villain be? That's that's the good question.
1: Oh, uh, Edmund Ban. If you find <laughs> Edmund Caliban or Antonio, Antonio, the most used name in Shakespeare, right? Yeah, yeah, Twelfth Night and um and Merchant of Venice, right? Um, yeah, I mean, there's I mean, Iago is the pure evil as well as Richard the Third, but I mean, I maybe you could do an amalgamum of all of them. Sure, the, the Shakespeare super villain. Uh, <laughs> and they have
0: they have these giant armies that just follow them at every command, and there's there's these crazy fight scenes with Prospero and all his spirits fighting, and and King Lear using his his powerful voice to blow down armies and and take yeah. out twenty or thirty at a time well that's fun and you know it was great being able to talk um, on a lot of poetry and and rhetoric like these rhetorical devices that remember what, what what did we have to say about rhetorical devices David again what was your definition
1: of uh, it's the art of persuasion rhetoric art of persuasion through language either written or spoken as spoken and it's not important that you learn the names of rhetorical devices only that you realize that something is happening with the poetry that you need to serve up or persuade through through the language persuade people using these rhetorical devices on stage as actors
0: well there you have it Boy, we're about out of time um but it has been awesome being able to catch up with you, David. And um, just so everybody knows, again, I'm going to repeat, the Idaho Shakespeare Festival dates of Lear run through August 27th. So by the time this podcast comes out, you'll have six days left to see it. Uh, <laughs> and the uh, the Great Lakes Theater dates when it comes to downtown Cleveland at the Hannah Theater are October 2nd through November 1st. Please Go see David Anthony Smith as the Earl of Gloucester and our friend Alan Davies as King Lear and the whole Great Lakes Theatre gang, bunch of really talented repertory actors. Um, any closing words for us, David?
1: No, I mean, it's just been great. Uh, anybody has any questions for me, uh, you can uh, friend me on Facebook, David Anthony Smith. Just let me know you heard, heard, heard about me through the podcast. And, uh, Kyle, it's just been awesome hanging out with you and talking about Shakespeare. Thanks, David, um, and if you want to, of course, get in touch with me,
0: you can visit my website, www.kyledowning.com slash Shakespeare, or get in touch with me on social media, at NYShakesGuy on Twitter, at NYShakesGuy on Instagram, and NYShakesGuy on Facebook, or check out my YouTube channel, Kyle Downing, parentheses, NYShakesGuy. Thanks for listening, everybody, and keep up the hard work on your bard work. Hello. I've never done a podcast
1: before. I've been dead for 400 years.